from the heart of the Forest City, focusing on the biggest stories in London, this is the Craig Needles Podcast. Now here's your host, Craig Needles. It's the Craig Needles Podcast. You can find us at classicrock981.com, londonnewstoday.ca, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And I want to talk about a subject today that we discuss often on this podcast, that we discuss pretty regularly, but at the same time, we don't really do a deep dive into it. And that's the way that addictions, specifically opioid addictions and homelessness kind of intertwine. We, of course, see that in our community a lot, and that's definitely part of the conversation surrounding hubs and how we help people who are dealing with homelessness and things along those lines. So I wanted to welcome uh, Dr. Joseph Mai to the podcast, who is uh, with uh, Central Community uh, Healthcare in uh, in St. Thomas, and, and Shelly West is, uh, is, a, is a nurse in St. Thomas as well. And, and they have, of, of course, a lot of the same issues when it comes to addiction that we do in this community. And I want to talk with them about what's going on in St. Thomas about this. So uh, uh, Dr. Mai and, and, and Shelly, thank you so much for, for doing the show and, uh, and glad that you could both be here today. Thank you for having us. Yes, yeah, it's our pleasure. We definitely want to share what we are doing. Yeah, so let, let's first talk about what is is going on when it comes to outrage at central community health care. So there are clearly people who are experiencing homelessness, and there are oftentimes in those situations people who are dealing with opioid addiction too. So what's what's the base response when someone comes in the door and they are dealing with both homelessness and opioid addiction uh, at uh, at your clinic there? Shelly, do you want to start? Because uh, Shelly was doing outreach clinic uh, before I arrived three years ago. And okay. then uh, I've kind of added the addictions process to it. So, so Shelly, what, what is it like when someone comes in the door? How, do, how does the, the communication begin, I, said, I guess, is the question. Um, well, at first, they're, they're almost always very leery. They, um, this is all new to them. People actually reaching out and, and trying to help them quite often makes them a little bit anxious and and uh, not sure who to trust. So when we started, when I started working out in the community and they started to get used to seeing my face and heard my name, then they started coming saying, you know, well, I think I've got an infection here or, or I just kind of need a medication for for my upset stomach and, and just little things like that. And then as they got to know us, they started talking to us more and more about what they were really experiencing every day in their life. And uh, usually it started with the, uh, the homelessness trials and tribulations of just trying to find food and bathrooms and, and a safe place to be every night. Um, and that eventually morphed into their mental health diagnoses and or their addiction problems. And uh, that becoming such a common theme with so many that were coming to talk to us and starting to trust us and starting to say, I really wish I could get off this roller coaster. I really wish I could, you know, change something and get back to what my life used to be, get my life back on track. And with that, Dr. Mai was listening and learning and, uh, the wheels started turning for him, I guess, so to speak. 
So when the wheels start turning for you, Dr. Mai, what, what, what does that mean? What, what, are, what are the steps on your end there? Well, I had been doing addictions treatment uh, since 2015, and I joined the CCHC in uh, 2000. And I, I got a real passion for it in my family practice. We had a group of six. And uh, like any family practice, there were a lot of patients who had opioid uh, use disorder. And they were very difficult patients to manage. You know, they were the ones who were always calling in, saying that they needed more medications. They lost it, you know, they needed an early release, that sort of thing. And it used to be very challenging for me. Uh, and then I got tired of kind of not knowing what to do and, and, and kind of like just pushing people off. So I did some training myself and went to CAMH and uh, got kind of a certificate on opioid use disorder treatment and concomitant diseases and so forth, mental health things. And I came back uh, to my practice with more information and, and a tool. And the tool was buprenorphine, which is now the first line treatment for opioid use disorder. And it comes in a couple forms, Suboxone and Sublocade. But back in the day in 2015, we only had Suboxone, which is the under the tongue uh, treatment. So what I started doing was treating my patients with Suboxone. And to my amazement, people were doing a lot better. So patients who used to always ask for more opioids because their pain wasn't being controlled, started to have good pain control. And then I started to see the transformation where patients used to be very difficult and ones that I dreaded seeing on my schedule became patients that I loved seeing because their lives had been transformed and they were so happy. And uh, it just made me feel like I was actually doing something positive in family medicine, a lot of times it's like patching things up and putting band-aids on. So this to me was like, you know, really doing something important so much so that I enjoyed it so much that I asked my other colleagues, the other five doctors to start referring their opioid patients to me, which they happily did because they did not want to deal with them. And I had the same success with those patients. And that really, uh, you know, put a fire under me and, and uh, gave me a lot of, uh, hope and motivation to do this work. And so in 2000, I decided to leave my general practice, which has, you know, lots of other responsibilities. And I wanted to focus more on the addiction part. And that's why I joined the community health center who deals with vulnerable patients as a rule. And uh, of course, I wanted to do the outreach because that's where, you know, we have closest uh, contact with the vulnerable patients. And uh, luckily, Shelly had already been doing that and had developed a relationship with a lot of these people. And that's where I came in. And I started with just using what I was doing back at my other clinic with the under the tongue treatment. However, just as I was starting at the CCHC, uh, that medication became available in the injectable form, Sublocade, and that was a game changer. And then my wheels started turning about how I could use that. So that we can go into what we decided to do for a model that has worked really well. But basically, that's the background. Yeah, and and that, that's fascinating to me. Uh, so let's talk about what the model is and what's working there. Because I know that uh, there are doctors that are all over the place that were kind of in the, the, the spot where you were, which is, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling 
pretty awful about where my patients are at with this stuff. And uh, I know there's a lot of uh, hot debate in the medical community about whether or how opioids should even be prescribed in the first place because of how addicted they can be. We can talk about that in just a little bit, but what were the, the, the next steps once you really started getting going there in St. Thomas? Yeah. Uh, you know, with the training I did with mental health, I could see that the clientele we had had a lot of comorbid conditions, right? And really, addiction is a symptom of other problems. People use drugs to self-medicate for whatever is ailing them. For a lot of people, it's trauma, you know, trauma from childhood, trauma from, you know, abuse, uh, you know, all sorts of things, or just inability to cope with the the uh, challenges of life uh, in their present state. So, can uh, homelessness then lead to addiction because of how challenging that li- that that life might be? That is true. I mean, yeah. if you look at the different models of addiction, there's the moral model, the medical model, then there's the choice model, and 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 more. We're leaning towards the uh, responsibility without judgment model. So, anyway, the the bottom line is that people respond to drugs a certain way. Yes, opioids are highly uh, habit forming and cause dependence, but not everyone who takes it gets addicted. And there's a difference. And the people who are at most risk are people who don't have other supports or other ways of coping. And this way of coping is the only way that they know and, and it works short term, right? So that's kind of where we approach the model of addiction. Uh, because it is the most scientific way. I mean, the moral model says, you know, people know it's wrong, but they're just choosing to do it because they're weak-willed. That doesn't really work. It's not real. And then there's the medical model, which has been more uh, accepted, which is like, you know, drugs hijack your brain. You can't think well. You're going to keep making bad choices. This is true. However, there it, we have seen that there is still choice, still responsibility that the person patient has, because we know that when their circumstances change, a lot of people do change their use, right? So that's kind of where we, we approach it from. Uh, so, Shelley, when, when we see people change their use and, and you know, start trying to, to deal with this head on, it, look, it's very, very difficult, especially if you're dealing with homelessness. So from a frontline care perspective, what's that like for, for you who's delivering that care? Um, yeah, you really have to understand where they're at as best you can every day. Um, I just people that I meet every day, I can't imagine living around a homeless shelter and being in that environment and trying to change your, trying to stop smoking cigarettes, trying to stop using drugs, trying to keep your anxiety and your trauma under control, trying to keep your schizophrenia from um, reacting to everything that's going on around you because it's a very volatile situation with different so many people in one place and uh, very triggering for a lot of people so we look at it that um, they do the best they can and we're going to help them do as much as they can and the best they can where they're at right now so kind of a harm reduction type uh, thought mm-hmm yeah, and and harm reduction is is important. I know some people hear the term harm reduction and roll their eyes a little bit. 
Uh, harm reduction is important. Like, I don't understand why we have to debate that part of it. I think there are different things in this sphere that we can have conversations and go back and forth about, about what's best and, and what's not. But um, if the choice is overdose or completely clean living right away, uh, harm reduction is obviously somewhere in the middle of that. And that, that seems a hell of a lot better than overdose to me. Like, call me crazy, yeah. but I, I think that's very obvious, right? And it's really the only to us, the, the only model that will work. I mean, um, anyone can be a cigarette, uh, have a cigarette addiction mm-hmm. and can tell you to just quit cold turkey right now today and never do it again is probably not going to happen. Yep. There's going to be a couple of false start attempts in most cases. There's going to be, you know, the, the, the gum, the nicotine patch. There's, there's assistance yeah. and aids that come along yeah. with quitting be it smoking or alcohol or whatever other addiction you can come up with. So uh, you would think opioid would be no different, right? You would think. (laughs) But that's just not how some people see it. And I, and I, and I, that, that's a frustration to me. And I'm sure it's a frustration to both of you as well. Let's talk then about, you know, when we're discussing where, you know, meeting people where they're at, one of those uh, conversations is going to be surrounding needle exchange programs. We can talk about safe supply in a couple of minutes. Uh, You do needle exchange programs where you're at, right? Yes. Yes, uh, we do. And, and that, uh, I think, again, that one, I don't think we should be having a lot of debate about whether needle exchange programs are a good idea. I think that much is very obvious. Uh, is there a supervised consumption site in St. Thomas? Is that is that one of the things that happens there? No, it is on the table right now mm-hmm. through the um, Woodstock and through the Southwest yeah. um, Public Health through Woodstock and St. Thomas. But we'll see what happens there. We have been approved for one, I hear, but... Uh, the rest of the talking has to be done. Uh, do both of you think that's a good idea or think that's the way we should go? Or do you think there's a different way to go here? Well, I, I think, you know, having a safe consumption supply uh, place is a great idea, right? If mm-hmm. we can man it and we can have it available to patients, it has to be available pretty much 24-7 if right. it's going to be utilized, right? And then how are you going to run it? Because it needs to be a, a resource, a place where people can feel safe, come use but not a haven for people to hang out sell drugs you know and commit crimes just outside the door which you know it depends on how you run the facility yeah uh, i would agree with that entirely if you're going to do it you got to do it right so let's let's talk about you know the way that this is prescribed to patients and i know that some of this might vary from from patient to patient but how do you pick when when someone comes in and says hey i'm dealing with with uh opioid use disorder i know they wouldn't probably call it that in their their common vernacular but i know that's what you would call it uh how do you then proceed as a as a doctor dr my and how do you how do you talk with that person through what their options might be and, and and what the best way to treat that would be yeah so definitely there are different options right traditionally you know the option for decades has been methadone uh, which has its advantages definitely it is another opioid so you're replacing the opioid that they're using with that one the benefit is that it's more easily regulated it's longer acting so you can just take one dose and it's good for all day uh, mostly and uh, it's in a liquid form so it's kind of like the safe consumption where People are drinking it right in front of the pharmacist and we, you know that it's in their system, right? So those are the advantages. The disadvantage is that it is just another opioid and it's actually a very potent opioid. 
and it can lead to the same long-term problems that all opioids have, like dementia, depression, uh, low testosterone, decreased motivation, dental problems, you know, all, all the, the usual stuff, which contributes to negative uh, quality of life for people, right? And, and getting off uh, methadone is very difficult, you know, as difficult, maybe more difficult than other opioids. So in 2015, they, uh, the company uh, Indivior released buprenorphine into Canada. I mean, it was uh, used across the world. But so that is the medication I use, and it's now become the first line uh, treatment medication in the Canadian guidelines, right? So mm-hmm. it is a partial opioid agonist. So it is like an opioid, but it only activates the receptors partially. So when you take methadone or any other opioids, it kind of fires up in your brain, releases tons of dopamine, like a 10 out of 10, you feel really great. But then your body says, whoa, this is so much, it kind of down regulates it. And then you, when it wears off, you feel horrible and that's withdrawal. And that's the thing that patients will tell you that withdrawal is what drives them to use again. It's very rarely the um, euphoria because initially the first few days or a week they have the euphoria that quickly goes away and then they're just chasing the withdrawal and that's a horrible feeling. Uh, People feel like they're going to die. Basically you get like stomach upset, vomiting, diarrhea, your skin, you know, gets goosebumps, you're shaking, chills and you're irritable and you know, it's a horrible experience, right? Right. And that's what patients want to avoid. So buprenorphine is a great medication for avoiding withdrawal. It binds very strongly to the receptors and it lasts a long time. The difference is that it does not release dopamine at the 10 out of 10 level. It might do it at a two or three, you know, uh, so you don't get, you know, the same euphoric feeling, but it's great for avoiding withdrawal. So for people who are very committed to, you know, getting off opioids, they're happy with that medication because they know they won't have withdrawal. They will still have cravings to a degree because they still remember how good it feels to take the other drugs. But that medication is great for getting off opioids. So if it's such a great medication, you think, you know, why wouldn't everybody just want to do this? Like I said before, though, a lot of people are not in a place to uh, stop because they are self-medicating for their traumas and so forth. And if that, uh, you know, veil of, uh, that mask is gone, then they're going to experience their traumas again, right? So that is the, the difficulty uh, because I would love everyone who has opioid addiction to be using buprenorphine because it does improve their mental function. It improves their like physical function and they aren't going to overdose. So the, the beautiful part of buprenorphine is that once it's in your system, it's virtually impossible to overdose with anything you take unless you're actively trying to kill yourself and you take so much. But people aren't taking drugs to try to kill themselves. They're taking drugs to feel something. Right. And at those doses, having buprenorphine on board eliminates the overdose. So in our uh, our experience, we have over 150 patients on the sublocate shot and we have not lost anyone to an opioid overdose we lost one patient which we're not sure why but i think it was more of a benzodiazepine overdose 
And the reason we know this is that sometimes these patients go to the, the hospital and they're given naloxone to try to reverse the opioid and the naloxone doesn't do anything. And we know it's more likely something else and they have to let it wash out of their system. So yeah, it's been a great medication, but uh, the, the problem that came up to me was why wouldn't everybody want to do this and how can we get more people interested in doing it? And that's where the wheels were turning. And that's how, uh, you know, I kind of came to the program that we have now. Uh, Shelley, what's the difference between treating someone for this uh, if they are dealing with homelessness or if they have, you know, a place to to rest their head at night? Or, or, or is there much of a difference? I, w- I would suspect that at least on some level there would have to be, right? Yeah, there there is a difference. We do have a um, probably a very big percentage of our clients on Sublocate are also our regular clients in the office who are, you know, don't face the stigma, have their own homes, have jobs, all that kind of stuff. And um, they do seem to respond quicker and they have all the things handy to them that they can actually access on a daily basis without um, too much trouble. So they progress faster for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. We do have a lot of um, ones that were homeless at the beginning that have changed their whole living situation and have been able to move forward and get housing and get jobs back and get their children back and, and uh, stuff like that, which is just phenomenal and oversees anything that I thought we would actually be able to help people do. So that's fantastic. But um the biggest common denominator between the homeless population and the not homeless population that are on sublocade is just that they can start thinking again. They're clear headed, their, their eyes are bright. They're able to really start making better decisions for themselves. Right. And that makes the biggest difference. Yeah. And that is not necessarily shocking. If you're spending a lot of your day wondering, hey, where am I going to sleep tonight? Where am I going to find something to eat? That's going to be a lot of wear and tear on your mind. If you can get those two things sorted and taken care of, you're going to be in a lot better mental health position after that's over, you would think. Yeah. I have a lot of people tell me being homeless is is uh, more than a full-time job. And, yeah. and I can see what they mean because every minute of their day it's just surviving. There's no time to have your mind relax a little bit. Yeah. So I do want to ask about safer supply. And uh, that's a, a very hot conversation in London and in a, you know several other cities around that there are some physicians that would say, hey, safer supply is the way to go here. Uh, that's, you know, g- give people what they, uh, what, what they want so they don't have that uh, withdrawal feeling as often as we've talked about. There are other physicians that would say, hey, there are situations where safer supply is, is kind of uh, abused in the, the amount of prescription that goes into creating safer supply is uh, is over and above the, the, the top of where it should be. Uh, Dr. Mai, what, what do you think about that conversation as, as you've watched that unfold? Yeah, no, I think this is a very important conversation and something that I've really been studying and looking and listening to different uh, specialists and uh, different proponents uh, for safer supply. Uh, I strongly feel that safer supply, the way it's being done, is not a benefit to the community. And in fact, I think it is quite harmful. Uh, there is a lot of clear evidence. Uh, 
mostly anecdotal at this point, but it is being collected that the amounts of uh, opioids given to clients is far too high because there is really no way to determine how much someone would need in order to not use illicit opioids, right? So a patient comes in, they say, you know, uh, 20 dilated eights is not enough. I still have withdrawal. I need more. And the, the compassionate physician raises that amount. But the patient may be dishonest or the patient is also developing tolerance and that's what happens mm -hmm. to the regular regular opioids you just need more and more over time and it's just dangerous to have that much in the community because over time the dilaudid doesn't even work well for these clients and so then they sell their dilaudid to get the stronger medications like fentanyl and uh, uh, other drugs so that leads to diversion of these drugs to the community in high, high quantities. And though it's a known quantity, it's still a dangerous medication. And we don't want that to get in the hands of people who've never used or, you know, younger people who are more you know, vulnerable. So that to me is, is a big problem. Mm -hmm. And that's why I don't use safer supply as my uh, treatment. Right. What, what I want, people to do is consider treatment with sublicate. And that is the art of this whole process. It's easy to say to someone, yes, you need opioids, I'll give you opioids. They won't argue with you, but it's harder to get their trust and say, hey, listen, yes, you can continue taking opioids. It's not going to improve your quality of life. You won't have the withdrawal because you'll always be taking it but you'll go up and down, up and down, and you're not gonna function. You're gonna be like sitting in a corner heaped over. You're not gonna get your kids back. You're not gonna work. So for me, function is the, the end goal. And I think that should be the end goal for any disease process or any problem. And so I say to patients, listen, if you can trust me, we can get you on this medication. It'll prevent you from having any overdoses. So the safer opioid supply can show that it reduces overdoses by 25%, but I can tell you, I can reduce your overdose chance by 100%. And it is gonna make you feel better. You're gonna have more clear thinking. You're gonna have more motivation. You're gonna have more energy. You're gonna be able to, you're gonna be physically feeling stronger and better. And you're not gonna have withdrawal at all. Even with the safe opioid supply, you take the medication and you start feeling withdrawal and you take the next one. This is different because you don't have to think about taking drugs to deal with withdrawal, which is a huge psychological uh, factor if you want to kind of live a normal life. You don't want to always be thinking about taking a drug to feel better or avoid feeling bad. So that's why Sublicade works so well. Now, the art is... How do I convince people who have been self-medicating with these other opioids to get on sublocate? And it was difficult at the beginning, but luckily through our outreach program where we got to know a lot of people and they began to trust us because, you know, I was treating them for wound infections and pneumonias, you know, I was treating them for their other mental health things and they could see that we had their best interest in mind. And then luckily a few key members of the vulnerable community uh, said, you know what, I'm tired of 
this cycle of opioid withdrawal and craving, and I want to try something different. So they took the sublocate injection. The injection lasts a full month. In that whole month, they don't have to think about withdrawal at all. And then they came back and they said, you know what, that was actually pretty good. I felt great. And, you know, I, I even forgot that I was a user some of the days because, you know, I, I wasn't taking pills every day. But then they said, however, I'm still using other opioids uh, on top. And, I, and that was my kind of uh, my moment where I made a big, um, it's my aha moment. So yeah, basically, the light bulb said, coming on type of thing. Yeah, because in, in a lot of other practices, the recommendation is you put someone on sublocate, they should feel no more withdrawal, their craving should reduce, they should have enough willpower to not use any other opioids. But that is actually not the case, and the studies do show that. And in some clinics, they still check people's urine on sublocate, and if they're using anything else, they take them off the sublocate, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. So I said, no, I'm not going to do that. One of the barriers for people on treatment is this frequent urine monitoring and uh, this uh, negative attitude towards them. So I said, if you go on sublocate, I don't care what you do. Just come back next month and get your sublocate because I know it's going to protect you against overdose. I know it's going to prevent you from having withdrawals. and It's going to reduce your cravings. So I guarantee you, you're going to use less than you used to saving yourself money and avoiding other potential uh, toxins and that's what people did and then as these patients became more regular they told their friends and then their friends started coming and then i had another aha moment some people came and they said well why would i go on sublocade you know because then i can't get as much of a high on the other medications and i tell them all the good things uh, and then they said, well, I still have to buy these other drugs, even if I'm on this, so it's not going to help me much. So I said, you know what, I'm willing to give you a very small amount of prescription opioids. And there's a limit that I set for everybody so that there's no, you know, arguing and pushing it up. I said, yeah, you can have, you know, two dilaudid eight a day to use in addition to your sublocate, because this will help with any psychological cravings you have, because that's a big piece that people don't get. Even when they're on treatment, people still think about it. And when they take the dilatidate, it has very little effect when they're on sublocate, but it has a little effect. And for a lot of people said, that's enough. You know, when they wake up in the morning, they used to always have withdrawal. Their, their habit was to take a, a drug. And now if they don't have something, they feel very anxious, right? So, so for a short term, they take these medications to try to deal with their uh, uh, habits and, and psychological cravings. And after a while, they say, you know what, I don't even need it. It doesn't do anything. And, you know, a number of patients have gone off of the uh, Dilaudid after that, and they just stay on the sublocate. And that has been a big win because it has attracted a lot more people to come for the sublocate than otherwise. Yeah, I, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I And I think that would probably be, and, and I know that we shouldn't do medicine this way, but easier, I think, for the public to handle because they hear that, okay, people are, are, are having their lives ruined by opioids and this is a real problem. And the solution is to give out more opioids. You know, I just think that doesn't really click for a lot of people, right? 
Right. So, so the model that we look at that I think is right, you know, is responsibility without judgment. Mm -hmm. So I feel patients still need to be responsible, Yep. but I don't judge them when they fail, but I still have that expectation. And when people get to the point where they are ready, they will fulfill their responsibility. And I've seen that over and over. I mean, it's not going to be like a hundred percent, but I would say, and Shelly probably agree, 10 to 15% of people have gotten their lives back completely. And there are a lot of others who are doing a lot better uh, going from homeless to being able to stay in uh, subsidized housing. Because when they were using illicit opioids, their behavior was so erratic that they would not be able to follow the rules and then they would get kicked out. Now, at least, they're on sublocade. They aren't at the level of kind of returning to work or, or doing more with themselves yet, but at least they can manage their own space, their own home, so that they can stay safe in an apartment that's given to them. So that is a huge win for us. Yeah, that is a good win. Shelly, would you agree with those numbers? We're talking, you know, 10 to 15% people uh, a lot better off? Yes, for sure. I would maybe even say 15 to 20. Wow, okay. Um, we have with other programs that are going on in St. Thomas right now for, for housing, um, that has helped increase our clientele numbers success rate too. And um, specifically with um, the indwell model. Yep. So now we have a certain, a small amount uh, off of our housing list, but it's working, it's getting better. And Indwell is um, supporting the program and supporting the clients along with um, counseling and supportive living and all that. So they're doing better and better and better. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And that's what everybody, I, I think, wants to hear. Uh, that people are doing better because we know this stuff hijacks people's lives. And, and, and I know the two of you see on the front lines and it's, it, it just it makes me really sad that's the case. Uh, last thing I want to ask you, uh, and I'll get both of your takes on this. Do you do we think that physicians, be it in the hospital, be it family physicians, whoever, do we need to start being way more careful or have we already started maybe being way more careful about prescribing of opioids? Because a lot of these situations are people who are prescribed opioids by a doctor and then they just couldn't kick them because the things are so damn addictive. Yeah. I think that has has improved. Improved, okay, maybe that's too, good. <laughs> maybe also too far to the to the other side. Too. Okay, uh, it seems to me, anyways, um, from what I hear from our clients, especially um, doctors, will either still give quite easily, but only a small amount, and then say go back to your family doctor or whatever, or um, they've totally cut people off of their benzos and their opioids and stuff when they've taken over new practices and stuff. So that caused a lot of, causes a lot of other issues too. Yeah. Dr. Mai, anything to add on that? Yeah, I definitely think there needs to be a lot more education for family physicians and specialists as well, because there is a right way to prescribe pain medication. Uh, but if you are all black and white, like, no, I'm not going to give anybody any pain medications or, okay, I'm going to give whoever wants it, like the safer supply. That's not the way to go. And, and a lot of 
physicians, uh, especially family physicians who need to know, don't know about buprenorphine. And it is a really great tool uh, because for a lot of patients, if they have mild pain, you can just put them on buprenorphine for pain. It's not addictive like the other ones. And then when they want to get off of it, it's very easy to get off. So that is something that, that physicians should learn about. The only challenge is that it's a little bit tricky when you're initiating, you have to have a bit of skill to avoid problems, uh, but it's not so hard that uh, family physicians can't learn it. And, and those are, that's where we're gonna make the most impact. If family physicians learn about buprenorphine in terms of treating it for chronic pain, using it for chronic pain, and also using it to treat patients who are already uh, dealing with opioid use disorder. Uh, really, we need to use our, the science, and that is where the science is at. That's why it's the first-line medication recommended by the Canadian uh, opioid use guidelines. When we talked earlier about numbers, you know, 15 20%, and we, we discussed looking at patients and, and they're feeling more clarity about their life. What are, what are the markers for you as evaluating what we're doing here is successful? Yeah, so uh, we have been collecting a lot of uh, anecdotal evidence and we are in the process of trying to collect more objective evidence so that we can publish some information to to really show our colleagues what we're doing is, uh, is successful. So the numbers I said about people returning to work, getting their kid, kid children back and uh, you know, avoiding criminal activity, though, those are very evident. Uh, but luckily, working in St. Thomas, it is a bit of a microcosm where I am doing this program, but there is not, not a safer supply or something else that is kind of uh, diverting people away. And so we've been really able to study this well. So we only have one emergency department. It's hard for people to go all the way to London uh, when you're vulnerable. So we know how many of our clients go to the eMERGE and we know that the numbers of eMERGE visits for overdose have gone down drastically. Uh, we have to get the numbers for eMERGE, but our colleagues at eMERGE say, yeah, it's incredible how, how much reduction there is. And then the police service have been very uh, open about saying, you know, the crime rates have gone down in the downtown core. The businesses are, are much happier. So, you know, people aren't just, you know, sleeping in their uh, doors, doorways, uh, and even the clients who are homeless, you know, they're taking better care of themselves. They're walking down the street, but they're not yelling and they're doing, you know, things that are inappropriate. Uh, so we feel that there is a lot of positives for this community. And like I said, it is a good way to study in a smaller setting so that we can apply it potentially to bigger settings. Is there anything else that either of you want to add or, or make sure we talk about in this conversation before we wrap up here? This has been really good. This has been fascinating for me. Well, well, yeah. I mean, the, the, the big thing for me is that um, addiction is a symptom. And right. when you can get past that, then you can deal with the underlying problems. And so the difficulty or the problem with safer supply, for example, is that you're not actually treating the condition. So the patients aren't in a better place to deal with anything. So they're still uh, going through the highs and the lows and withdrawals and they're not functioning. They're not getting into housing because they can't stay in the housing when they're just like unconscious half the time. 
So then nothing else gets done. So for me, my end goal is function. So the first step, the most important step is to get people ready. And when they get on Sublicate, I would say, I don't know, 100%, but pretty much everybody who's on Sublicate, their mind is way, way clearer. They say, yeah, this is kind of how I used to feel before I was on uh, opioids. Then it gives me a chance to start talking about the underlying problems. So, you know, let's talk about your emotions, your bipolar. Uh, and then, you know, you'll hear their stories. Yeah, I went to psychiatry and they brushed me off and this and that. You, you can start to work with them again. So, you know what? Maybe that medication didn't work the first time because you weren't taking it regularly because you're kind of uh, dealing with your addiction. Well, let's see what happens if you start taking it regularly. And you can trust me because I believe this medication would work for you. And then they start doing it. And then another thing changes. So they're not dealing with their addiction, but then also their anger and their anxiety gets better. Uh, or, you know, their uh, OCD or compulsions get better. And then they're like, wow, you know, I can actually do something. I can, I can maybe go back to work because, you know, I, I can wake up in the morning, right? So it's the first step. And that's why I think we need to treat people with a medication that clears their mind, not giving them more opioids just to avoid overdose. So yes, you're preventing them from dying, but are you giving them quality of life? Are you actually making anything better or are you just pushing the condition down the road they don't die today from overdose but they'll die in 10 years because of uh the long-term effects of the opioids right mm -hmm. so that's my key message why i think treating with buprenorphine which comes in sublocate or suboxone is important because it helps people's minds readjust to that uh, addiction state from that addiction state to a more normalized state so they can deal with their other problems. Shelly, anything you want to add to that? Um, no, he says everything so well. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, it's just, uh, it is exactly that, the first step. And uh, seeing them come in a month later or even a week later and being so alert and starting to make plans and starting to be excited about how they feel is uh, better than any any feeling I've had in my many years of nursing. So watching everyone go from being that person sitting on the on the street corner with everybody pointing at them and and not willing to help them to being alert and being able to decide where they're going for their next meal and you know finding a place to put their tent for the night and stuff like that is is a win yeah no i uh i, I definitely think that's a win too and that's what we've got to be focused towards as a, as a society there's a lot of uh, problems that led us to where we are now um but we've we've, we've we've got to fix them and addictions is just one of those fronts so thank you both of you for the work that you do and thank you both of you for coming on the podcast and talking with me today okay yeah yeah thank you thank you great that's uh dr joseph Mai and, Sh and shelly west who is a nurse and they work at the central community health care center in saint thomas which uh 
uh, helps people who are dealing with uh, opioids and other various addictions and and, and, and other uh, medical issues as well. And it is, uh, well, you can see more about them at uh, centralchc.com. That's that's their website and that's where you can get all the information about them. That's all the time we have on this episode of the Craig Needles podcast, which of course you can find at classicrock981.com and londonnewstoday.ca. Also, we're on your favorite podcast app. The Craig Needles Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. 